Job chapter 2 and verse 11. I told you last week I wanted to spend one more week in chapter 2 on a Sunday morning, and well, I want to spend one more week in chapter 2 on Sunday morning. If you were here Wednesday night, we already uh, got through, I guess, is about chapter 5. But uh, let's, let's slow down. There's something else to talk about right here in chapter 2. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Father, I am just so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the fact that we can come here and gather and, and open up to truth every week, every day, Lord, as often as we should choose. I'm thankful, Father, that You made Your Word tangible to us beyond time and space and dimension that You, who are, are so great and powerful and wonderful, saw fit to speak into this little world that You've created and found a way to make yourself known to us in ways that can be proven and seen and, and tested and known. And we continue to thank you for this book, the book of Job, and for your insight, Lord, your wisdom that is beyond all comparison in looking ahead and thousands of years ago, Father, laying this out, answering and dealing with the problem of human suffering. But more than that, Father, thousands of years ago, calling us to turn to You, calling us to be close to You, calling us back to You. And we truly see what is in Your heart, Father, that all people be saved. And not just saved for, for an eternity, but saved to be in relationship with You. And I pray that You would shed more light on this for us this morning. Draw us, Lord, we ask boldly only because of the blood of Christ we ask that you would draw us intimately and bring us near may we walk closer to you today for what you teach us even than we did yesterday in Jesus name Amen You know, one of the most shocking statements that Jesus ever made, and yet one of the most obvious at the time, was this. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves or servants, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. It was obvious at the time, because Jesus spoke those words there at that last Passover meal with His apostles, seated, laying there in true Hebrew fashion around the Passover table. John was so close that the Gospel of John tells us he was leaned right up against Jesus. 
Jesus was gathered there as you would at Passover with His closest friends. And so when Jesus says, I have called you friends, you can almost see the apostles going, yeah, of course Jesus. Wonderful Jesus. We've been walking with you three years, Jesus. We are your friends. Save one betrayer who was there as well. But though it was obvious at the time, it ranks up there with some of the most shocking statements Jesus ever made. Because the invitation of Jesus Christ, whom God exalted above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, the shocking thing about this statement is the invitation of Jesus Christ today to you and to me is to friendship. It's to friendship. You know, to sit around the table with Jesus there in the flesh is one thing, but to be called by the resurrected, glorified God and King Jesus Christ to be called into a friendship, that's shocking. Let me go a step further. Christianity, unlike any other world religion, and I shudder even to refer to it as a religion at all, but Christianity, what makes it different is it is about friendship in the truest sense of the word. Which is why calling it a religion doesn't make sense. John was telling me, actually Taylor Adelot was telling me, she was on the bus, her and Chandler coming back from school the other day, and, and a, another kid was sitting beside them and, and began just pestering them with questions. One question, question after another. Asking them what they believe. Somehow it got into this question about uh, you know, what, what you believe, and Taylor said, we're Christians. I said, Roman Catholic? No, no, we're, we're Christians. What kind of Christian? <laughs> Just Christian. And, and he was trying to figure out their religion. Okay, so what's your religion? She said, well, well, we believe in Jesus and we meet in a barn. He goes, you meet in a barn? <laughs> and you're Christian? I mean, he, he could not wrap his mind around this, this religion. And Taylor's just trying to say, we believe in Jesus. That's what makes you Christian. And this kid, for whatever his upbringing is, could not grasp that that Christianity is about friendship in the truest sense of the word now some might say well Rick doesn't the word friendship belittle the great and glorious relationship that we have with God doesn't it take away from the awe of our worship and I would say absolutely not not if we truly understand friendship the friendship that Jesus has called us into wants to share with us the Hebrew word for friend is interesting it's rea I've shared before that that's the name that uh, Aaron and Kelly Shalesky have given their dog, Rhea. She calls it little Rhea Rhea Sunshine, and I don't know about that, but the dog's there to be a friend, (coughs) Rhea. But the root word of Rhea, where it comes from is interesting. It literally means, it's a primary term for feeding domestic animals. It's a word that is attached to shepherding and nurturing and tending your flocks and your herds. Isaiah 40, verse 11, like a shepherd, ra'ah, which is the root word, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Friendship is about that. True friendship, and not the superficial stuff that we see so much in the world that is emulated, I think, in texting (laughs) and emails and instant messaging. That's not friendship. That's superficiality. That's you know, minimal communication. Friendship, in the truest meaning of the word, is tending one to another. It's feeding each other. 
It's looking after each other. It's caring. It's even shepherding. Because there are times, and you know this, in a friendship where maybe you're the shepherd. Because your friend needs some leading through a difficult situation, a dark valley. Or maybe they become the shepherd because you need that same help. As you go to them and say, would you pray with me? Would you help me through this? Ra'ah. Feeding, nurturing, caring. And gang, because of that definition and that being the heart of friendship, friendship rests at the heart of Christianity. That's what we're about. Well, so are you saying that Christians have the corner on friendship, on the market of friendship in the world, that it's all Christians, they get the friendship thing, but no other world religion does. That's not what I'm saying at all. Although if the, you know, if the faith fits, wear it. What I'm saying is this, and understand me, the value of our faith depends on friendship. The value of our faith as believers in Jesus Christ depends on friendship. What I mean is you can't call yourself a follower of Jesus unless you're a friend of His. Now let that sink in for a moment because there are an awful lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus, walk in and out of church every Sunday and have no relationship with Him whatsoever. That is not a follower of Jesus. You've heard the old thing, you know, calling, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Okay? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It is about that relationship. It is about friendship. You can't even call yourself a follower of Jesus unless you're a friend of His friends. Because it's all based in that. And it's not exclusive. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Which means anyone who does what Jesus commands is friend of Jesus. And is a friend of Jesus' friends. Well, what does Jesus command? Love. Love each other. As I have loved you. That was the whole context of Jesus saying, you're my friends if you do what I command. Remember in John 15, He's talking about love. Love one another. This is my great command for you. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. What are you commanding, Jesus? Love each other. And you too will walk in friendship with me. In the book of Job, the issue of friendship is huge. It's yet another one of those backdrops of what's going on. We've talked about the great theme of Job truly comes down to repentance. A man turning not from evil, but turning toward God. We've talked about the fact that Job touches on the theme of human suffering and sorrow and and God's response to that. But it's also about friendship. Because the whole of this book is four friends struggling together. Trying to work out what's going on. Dialoguing one to another back and forth. And I know it gets brutal and ugly. But the reality is nowhere is this model of friendship, true Jesus follower friendship, Nowhere is it better developed than in adversity. You know when you walk with a friend through hard times, the friendship is better for it. If you can make it to the other side. That it's the tough stuff. That it's the sorrow that that bonds two friends. It's not the trips to Disneyland. You know? It's not the the light and fluffy times. It's not the, the entertainment we share together. No, it's the hard times that we weather together. My best friends in the world are those who have stuck with me through the very difficult times. And I know it's the same for each of you. And the Bible says, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ? Yes. The call to friendship, to love. So tending to, caring for, even shepherding if necessary when a friend has fallen on hard times is at the heart of Christianity. And it's at the heart of the book of Job as well. 
Proverbs 17.17 tells us a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Now some say, okay, so a friend loves you, but a brother's going to cause you problems. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about the deepest of relationships, that a friend is always there, even like a brother, or like a brother should be there, that you go through the hard times together. Proverbs 18.24 even says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now Job has friends. He's got three that we know of specifically. But some might say, well, with friends like Job's, who needs enemies? And in fact, Job himself, later on in chapter 16, verse 2, will say, you guys are sorry comforters. Miserable comforters. In verse 20 of chapter 16, he says, my friends are scoffers. And you know, beginning in chapter 3 and going all the way through 38, these friends rail on Job. They tear into him. They pour salt in the wound. And when that's not enough, they pull out the lemon juice. I mean, they really add to his suffering. 38 chapters of bitter, biting dialogue and the friendship of these four men will suffer greatly for it. However, the Lord will step in at just the right time. But I want you to recognize this. For all of the problems and for the stupid things that his friends say throughout the book of Job, they are continually called his friends. They're still Job's friends. They get a bad rap, these three guys, because they get it wrong. Because they don't treat him well. Because they don't know how to reply or react. But they're still his friends. And so again, friendship is actually one of the surprising themes of the book of Job. Specifically, how to walk as a friend with another friend through adversity and affliction. Well, there are some marks of friendship early on that we've got to give these guys credit for. Right out the gate, we notice in verse 11, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, They each came, one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. First thing to note about these three friends, they journeyed for Job. In fact, they journeyed a long way for Job. We know from the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, that Job lived in the land of Uz. That was probably in the region of the Syrian desert. Somewhere there south of Damascus. Eliphaz is a Temanite, which means he was from Teman, which is a land that they believe was actually as far south as the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia today. So for Eliphaz to go visit his friend Job was quite a journey. Would have taken him a long amount of time to get there, hundreds of miles. Bildad, the Shuhite, probably came about 300 miles northwest of where Job was. And just think how long it would take a man who's the height of a shoe to get that far anyway. I mean, that'd really wear out the soul, wouldn't it? Sorry. But after his trip, I'm sure Job's not the only one who needed healing. Sorry, let's move on. The third guy... The third guy is Zophar, the Naamathite, who had to travel Zophar to get there... And you, you look at these guys. Actually, with Zophar, Joshua 15.41 mentions a Canaanite town called Naama, which is probably where Zophar hailed from. Naama, which was Canaanite prior to Israel coming in, the Jews coming in and conquering. And so he may have journeyed several days at least from there. But the point is, these three men went a long way to get to where Job was. They had to cut into their lives. 
They had to stop what they were doing. And the fastest transportation in that time, they couldn't have jumped on a train, gotten in a car, you know, hailed a taxi or caught an airplane. They had to journey by foot or camelback at best. And there were desert caravans that went to and fro, which is probably how they found out about Job, is the information highway there in the caravans. But each one of these guys, when they hear of their friend's tragedy, they take time off from work, they leave their families, they leave their homes, and they journey to where Job is, and they stick. They go a long way for him. Why did they come? What was their motive? Look at the last part of chapter or of verse 11. They made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Now that's interesting. These three guys who end up causing so much, so much consternation and problem later, their motive, their reason for coming is sympathy, sympathy and comfort. Well, sympathy, the Hebrew word, is nude. Not like our word nude. Please don't get it wrong. It means literally in the Hebrew, N-U-D, it means to shake. It means to shake or to rock back and forth as someone who's just aching would do. And so that kind of sympathy means to kind of take on what they're taking on. That is, Job is just rocking and sorrow and, and anguish and hurting that the three friends are there with him. Have you ever seen pictures of the Western Wall or maybe live video feeds or, or if you've been there, watch Hasidic Jews, the ultra-Orthodox, pray. As they pray, often they'll have their prayer book open or their Bible and they will be there before the wall and they just rock. And they rock very quickly as they're praying. And some say they do that so they can stay awake and pray longer. (laughs) Others say because of the emotion of the prayer. And it is something that the Hasidic Jews have done for for ages. And these three friends, they come to rock back and forth with Job to sympathize with him. They come to comfort him. The Hebrew word nakam, which means breathing deeply or sighing. And it indicates an intense physical display of compassionate feeling. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar journey this long way for no other reason than to sympathize with and comfort their friend. That's good stuff. That's that's a, a good model of what a friend is willing to do for someone else. How far are you willing to go for a friend? Where do you draw the line? You know, in your in your uh, level of relationships. You have your very, very close friends and then it gets more superficial as so it goes down and there's somewhere to draw the line. You know, someone says, hey, I'm moving Saturday and you're like, have fun with that. Now, if you're willing to help a friend move, you've just, you've taken it up a notch. As I helped Russ Pittis yesterday, I just want you to know, I took it up a notch. <laughs> How far are you willing to go for a friend? Are you willing to sit with them in anguish? Are you willing to see them through long-term illness, depression, struggle, tragedy? Are you willing to go the distance like these three men did? Seeking to provide comfort and sympathy even if it's uncomfortable for you. I mean, sometimes you get with a friend who's really struggling or maybe they've even made a sin choice that's badly messed up their life. Are you willing to stick with them even when you don't know what to say or what to do or even how to behave? I was in the hospital years and years ago. Back I was 20 years old and had a surgery. And... uh, and it was a bone graft. I, I may have shared this. It was a bone graft from the hip up into the jaw. And so my hip, oh, I can't, if you have any work in, in, in this region, be careful going around corners for one thing because you don't realize how much you run into corners just on a natural daily basis. Coughing is terrible. Sneezing. <laughs> ah! 
I mean, it was, it was really bad. I'm lying there. Day, right after the surgery, I'm in the hospital bed. Laughter was right out. And my friend Chris walks in. And his entrance alone, you know, the curtain flies back and he goes, ta-da! You know, I'm like, don't make me laugh, man. No laughing, man. And he handed me this card that was hilarious and he kept cracking jokes and it was, oh, it was, it was painful. He didn't know how to behave in my moment of sorrow and suffering. <laughs> The 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, listen, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that I don't have to have the right words. I don't have to worry about, am I going to do the right thing? I just got to be there. Because the Lord will provide that. The Lord has already comforted me. If you've ever received an ounce of comfort from the Lord, guess what? You have some comfort to give someone else. And that's what these three guys come to do. It's not comfort learned by experience. It's comfort given by the Spirit of God. You might say, but but Rick, I don't want to go and say the wrong thing. Then don't. Don't go saying the wrong thing. Just go. And don't say anything. Listen, Job's friends only said the wrong thing when they started talking. For seven days prior to that, they didn't say the wrong thing. They did the right thing. They rocked with Job. They breathed deeply, sighing sorrowfully with Job. They were just there for Job. Sometimes the best thing you can do when someone is in sorrow or pain or suffering is show up and shut up. And I can do that. <laughs> I know you don't believe me, but I can. As his friends sat with Job in silence, it brought comfort. And silent comfort opened the floodgates for Job to be able to express grief. It was after seven days, they didn't say a word, that finally then Job was able to just go, oh, I've got to say what's on my heart here. And he begins to pour out his grief. But note this, not only did Job's friends journey a long way for Job, but they stayed a long time with Job. And that's part of this as well. That how far are you willing to go? Well, how long are you willing to stick? How long are you willing to stay? Verse 12 says, When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize Him, they raised their voices and wept. Each one of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. That was symbolic of death. This is how bad off Job was. A shell of the man that they had known before. Where was Job when they sat down with him? For it tells us very clearly that they came and they, they sat down, verse 13, on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word, for they saw that his pain was great. Well, where was he when they sat with him? Look back at verse 8. It tells us after all this tragedy had happened, he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Now, we know this from culture and history. For someone like Job to sit among the ashes, what this meant was Job was literally in the ashes of the city dump. The place of burning. Where refuse and dung was burned outside of the city. That's where Job was. In chapter 29, verse 7, Job tells us himself, he previously sat as an honorable judge at the city gate, this wealthy, righteous, wise man. And now he's sitting on a smoldering pile of manure at the city dump. And that's where his friends sat with him. Well, why, 
Why would he do that? That's a little weird, isn't it? Didn't you ever think it was weird that, that he gets boils all over his body and he grabs a piece of broken pottery and sits down in ashes? I haven't heard a doctor recently prescribe such a thing for boils. And yet this is what he does. Why? Well, it underscored the unclean. Job was unclean and therefore he's outside of the city. Job was unclean and therefore he, he is kind of outcast. You don't want to see that walking around. So he's out of the dump. But not only did it underscore the unclean, it depicted despair. When you were in despair, and you've seen this throughout scriptures, to tear the robe, to put ashes on your head or dust on your head, to sit in ashes, was a, a symbol of the despair that was inside. And Job is certainly feeling that. But it also soothed suffering. In ancient time, ashes were used even to numb pain. And so for all the boils, the ashes being nearby was something that would bring some momentary relief. I know it sounds unclean and kind of gross and probably not the best thing. You know, us with our little hand sanitizers probably aren't going to give a friend ashes. But this is where he was. And for all these reasons, what's amazing is that Job's three friends sat with him there. They went to where Job was. They stayed with Job where he is. Seven days and seven nights. They didn't book a nice hotel elsewhere and then pop in for ten minutes until they couldn't take looking at him any longer and then head out of there just, whew, boy, I just needed a break from that guy. They stayed. How long are you willing to stay with a friend? How long are you willing to put up with a friend? Jesus said that, didn't He? Oh, faithless and unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? Well, he's done it for 2,000 years. Actually, he's probably done it more like six. How long are you willing to stay with a friend? Finally, Job cries out in grief. And as we began Wednesday night, we see Eliphaz take it upon himself to correct Job's theology. But here's the third thing to note. Even in their speaking, there's one more thing we can see. They, they journeyed a long way for Job. And they they stayed a long time with Job. But number three, these friends conveyed their hearts to Job. And this is something often missed in the harm that they bring. (laughs) That's unfortunate as they wound his wounds. But it is one upside of a mostly hurtful conversation. They didn't speak about Job. They spoke to Job. They had concerns about Job. They thought he was wrong. They took it to him. It's another mark of a friend. My friends, if you're talking negatively about me, you are not my friends. Unless you're talking negatively to me. Though I might not like it, I can handle it. Because it's here. And I can do something about it. I can respond. I can explain. I can set things right or I can repent. But if you're talking about me, where is the friendship in that? Even if words are hard to hear, if you speak to me, you and I can go a long way together. But if you're speaking about me, gang, for all the nonsense and foolishness and even judgment, Job at least knew his friends cared enough to talk to him. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. These three guys aren't out talking down Job about what a filthy sinner he must be because of the situation he's in. See, their theology is messed up. Their theology is bad, it's wrong, it's incorrect. We'll see this as we go through. But at least they took their bad theology to Job. You know, at least they're talking to him and not about him somewhere else. 
This proverb, I think, is very interesting. Solomon says again, He who covers a transgression seeks love. That's what they were doing. They're covering Job's transgression. They think, after seven days, they're looking at him, and the conclusion they come to is this guy has sinned royally. He's got to have done something wrong. But what a friend does is cover a transgression. I'm not saying hides it or or, or puts it away, but seeks not to bring shame to a friend. I have a, a very close friend who had an affair recently. I have a responsibility not to go out and... I mean, I'm talking to you about him, but, <laughs> but, but I'm not mentioning a name. And I wouldn't. Because it covers him. You know what I'm saying? That you cover the shame of a friend. If you love someone, you don't want them to be torn about town. But he who repeats the matter separates friends. In other words, friendship covers, gossip exposes... And I like this about Job's three friends. They're not out exposing Job. It reminds me of another story in Scripture. You may recall, Genesis chapter 9, Noah gets drunk. Noah! Righteous Noah! The one man in the world that God said, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to escape because you found grace in my eyes. And he gets drunk after the ark. He comes out, he plants a vineyard, He makes the wine and he gets drunk in his tent and he falls over naked, passed out in his tent. As the story goes, his youngest son, Ham, goes into the tent and sees this. (laughs) Goes right to his brothers. You're not going to believe what I just saw. And totally disgraces his father. Shames him. Exposes him. What do Shem and Japheth do? Do you you remember? They walk backward. Backward into the tent with a garment over their shoulders without looking and they lay it over their dad and they come back out of the tent because love seeks to cover shame. And in a friendship, that's the bottom line is you're seeking to cover and heal not to expose and to bandy about. Gossip exposes. Gossip brings about ridicule and shame and disgrace. So the question is for you and for me, what do we convey about our friends? Job's friends sought to convey their hearts to him. What do we convey to or about our friends? Paul includes gossip in the graphic description of last day's corruption when he says in 2 Timothy 3.1, In the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. And gossip is more the way of our culture than it's ever been. From the TV news, people ripping people apart politically, it's okay. There's no more honor, there's no more dignity when you turn on the tube. And it's spilling over into our relationships in a very tragic way. It's okay to tear that person apart because they're not here. We're going to talk about them. We live in a culture where gossip columns and media slander are unparalleled, at least in my memory. Dignity and propriety are things of the past. The best way to shut down the gossip mill, the rumor mill, the best way to shut it down is stop listening. Just don't listen. And the best way to stop your own tendency toward gossip, if you happen to have one, is Matthew 18.15, where Jesus says you got a problem with your brother, you go to your brother. If every time you had an issue with someone, you took it directly to them and not to anybody else, it would be amazing how much gossip would quiet in your life. 
A true friend says, I won't say anything about you in your presence that I wouldn't say, or in your absence that I wouldn't say to you in your presence. I won't say anything about you in your absence that I wouldn't say to you in your presence, you being right there, present with me. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Job's friends wound him, and they wound him big. They, they hurt him big time, but at least they're faithful to him. And again, I, I give them credit for that. That, that, that. They travel, they journey a long way, and they stay with him for a long time. And they convey their hearts to Job and not to other people. Now maybe you're the one who's sitting here and you're saying, well, well great, Rick, Rick I'd, lo- I'd love to be a friend. I'd love to have you know, that kind of relationship, but I am alone right now. I'm the one who needs a friend. I need someone to sit with me. I need someone to weep with me. I need someone just to be with me. My dad used to always say growing up, it's one of those Mike Brady phrases, you know. Uh, he'd say, Rick, to have a friend, you got to be a friend. You want to have a friend, you got to be a friend. Well, I applied that technique quite effectively as a young man until I found that from time to time, I wasn't always the friend that I wanted to be. What I'm saying is if it depended on me to to be a friend, sometimes I wasn't the best friend that I could be. And I found that sometimes friends stuck with me in spite of that. My friends today have to be very patient with me. I'll be honest. I can get into my head. I can get into something, some area of focus and not come up for weeks. (laughs) And my friends have to be patient with that. My friends, just because of my, my role as a pastor have to be patient with my time because I don't have the time I used to have. So I have friends who recognize, you know, and I might not get together with Rick for lunch or for coffee for weeks on end, but that's okay. And they're patient with me, and I, I need that. But I've learned, I've learned this much over the years, and please listen. I, I think my dad's phrase, which is that old catchphrase, I think it's wrong. I don't think it's, to have a friend, you got to be a friend. I think... To be a friend, you've got to have a friend. I think it's the opposite. What do you mean by that, Rick? To be a friend, you've got to have a friend. Because even at our very best, we're not much better than Job's friends at times. I mean, have you ever been with someone who's struggling and in sorrow and all you could think to say was something judgmental? Maybe you're more compassionate than I, but sometimes something pops out of your mouth and you go, man, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you know, they needed to hear it. I'm speaking the truth in love. Don't get me wrong. I know we all want to be good friends. But I'm not sure how often we're capable, at least of keeping it up 24-7. No. It's not if you want to have a friend, you've got to be a friend. It's if you want to be a friend, you've got to have a friend. And I'm talking about you've got to have a friend in Jesus. If you want to be a friend, you've got to have a friend in Jesus. Because that's the only way that, that I've begun to understand that I can truly be a friend to you. is because I have a friend in Him. Because He chose me, I can choose you. Do you see how that works? Because He chose you, you can choose someone else. Because the love flows from Him to you and then can overflow into others around us. To be a friend, you've got to have a friend in Jesus. Listen, how far are you willing to journey for a friend? That was the first question we asked. Well, Jesus asked this question. How far did He go to be a friend? Greater love has no one than this than one lays down his life 
for His friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command you, He said. The friendship factor in a relationship with Jesus is absolutely astounding, almost hard to believe. To say with all reality, God befriended me. And not just a little way, He went beyond superficial to intimate and beyond intimate to death. Jesus befriended me. So much that He was a friend to you long before you even knew Him. He suffered before you ever knew sorrow. So that when you knew sorrow, He could be there for you as your friend. How long are you willing to stay with a friend, we ask? Well, how long is Jesus willing to stay with a friend? He says, Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always. Even to the very end of the age. He says in John 14, 18, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I mean, can it get more intimate than that? Can friends get closer than Jesus offers to be with us? Walking and talking and always constant, always available. Have you noticed that? That if you're driving down the road and you go, man, I'd really like to talk to Jesus. He's never busy. He is never unavailable for you. It doesn't matter where you are, what circumstance you're in, it doesn't matter the noise of the room or the silence of the hour, He is available to you instantaneously because He's willing to stay with you constantly. You wake up in the morning, He's there. You lay your head on your pillow at night, He's there. You fall asleep praying, He's there. You wake up in the middle of the night, you've had a nightmare, you have an issue, you're concerned, you're having trouble sleeping, guess what? He's there. You ever thought about how rude it is to pray to Jesus in the middle of the night? I mean, you have to wake him up and get him out of bed and, look, I need to talk, I know you're resting. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is always there. And for those who have not accepted his friendship, he is staying his return. His patience is huge. Peter says he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Remember, repentance is the theme of Job. You even see the patience of God, the patience of Jesus, in what people call the patience of Job. Through 38 chapters, God waits. He's there. He's listening. He's letting them roil and get all their stuff out and be frustrated throughout all their talk until finally they have said everything they can think of to say and then God says, okay, let's have a talk. Let me share with you where you all are missing it. The third question we asked was, what do you convey to or about your friends? And when it comes to conveying His heart to you, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus in John 15, 15 says, I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. He, when it comes to conveying His heart to you, Jesus has given us everything. He's conveyed it all. His love, His passion, His desire, our future, our hope. Everything has been given to us by Jesus. He has conveyed His heart to us. What does He convey about you? And this is good stuff. When it comes to talking about you, Jesus always comes to your defense. He always stands up for you. When the accuser is accusing, as Satan does, who is there defending but Jesus Christ? 
Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, just rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And so we have Satan as the accuser. We have Jesus as our advocate. Satan is the slanderer. Jesus is my intercessor. Satan the prosecutor. Jesus my defense. This is a friend who always comes to our defense. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. You see, to be a friend as you were meant to be, you got to have a friend in Jesus. He goes the distance. He stays through the hard times in the dump. To the end of the age, He conveys His heart to you. He stands in your defense. Well, back to Job's friends. Jesus is the perfect example. We see some, we learn some good things from them. But you might wonder, if these three friends were willing to journey for Job and stay with Job and convey their heart to Job, why do they end up wounding him so badly? If they really cared for him. I just read this this morning. I struggled with this all weekend long, and this morning I picked up an Oswald Chambers book called Our Ultimate Refuge, a little booklet that he wrote about the book of Job. Brian Young sent it to me last week. And I woke up this morning literally still struggling with this whole issue of why, if they love him so much and they care about him and they want to comfort him, why do they go in and they just start with their words, they add sorrow to sorrow. Chambers writes, the friends came to the conclusion that their view of God was right. Therefore, Job must be wrong. They had what he calls the ban of finality about their views. That is, they had the limitation of having their minds made up, which is always the result of putting theology before God. That's huge. Why would they end up hurting their friend when they sought to help their friend? Their theology got in the way. What they believed about God, which was not true, but they held fast to it. They were sure of it. Now, I know none of you have ever done that. But isn't that one of the biggest problems? One of the biggest reasons why the world looks at Christianity as another religion is because they see the theology and they don't see the relationship. And they're so used to seeing the theology and the hierarchy and the doctrine and the dogma that some have trouble believing Christianity is anything other than a religion. And so when we say, no, it's about friendship with Jesus, they go, how, how do you get that? You see, we have, like Job's friends, we have the ban of finality about our views. Our theology is what's important. And so we go in and someone is suffering and we want to make sure we're straight with our theology. Let me give you an example. I have sat and talked with someone who's lost a loved one who did not believe in Jesus and they put the question to me, are they in heaven? Now my theology would say, unless they have faith in Jesus Christ. My theology would say, unless they have faith in Jesus, no. Let me tell you what I tend to say. What I say is, I am so thankful we have a God of grace. And what I can tell you with assurance is that your friend or family member is in the hands of mercy. 
And I'd much rather be in God's hands of mercy than in my hands of theology. Because in my theology, you wouldn't have a chance. Oh, Rick, wait a minute. Are you saying that you can get into heaven without Jesus? No, I'm saying I have an understanding of Scripture. But when I'm talking with someone who's hurting or struggling, or even if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking of someone who's gone on, and you've wondered, hey, you know what? There's something more important than theology here. It's our friendship with the Lord. There's something that is higher than law, and it's love. Does that mean we throw out theology? No. Does it mean we don't? We stop studying the Word and we just hang out together in fellowship and relate? No. Because we want to know what God wants us to know. But we've got to move beyond the knowing into the heart, which is where relationship happens. For Job's friends, religion outweighed relationship. And that was where they got into trouble. They're the well-meaning friends of Job. They bash him and they belittle him and they blame him until he's bummed out beyond his original state. And honestly, if it was me, I would have dumped him right there in the dump. I would have said, fine, you guys have this attitude. You can have your faith. I'm out of here. Ever heard that one before? Someone says, you can have your Christianity if that's what you believe. I'm gone. You can't even show me an ounce of love or mercy or grace here. Then I don't believe the grace that you talk about. This is why we need a friend in Jesus. Watch how the Lord handles this. Skip all the way to the end of Job, chapter 42. This is just wonderful. And I'm going to give you the end of the movie before we even get there. Part of it, anyway. So you could call this a Bible study spoiler. If you don't want to know how this ends, plug your ears. Job 42, verse 7. Watch this. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. (laughs) They went to pray for Job and God says, no, Job needs to pray for you. I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Watch this. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. What? Did you see what it says? They did what the Lord said and I would expect it to say and the Lord accepted them. It doesn't say that. It says the Lord accepted Job. This is amazing. To journey to where a friend is, to stay with a friend in their pain, to convey your heart to a friend is all good stuff. But Job prayed for his friends, catch this, and God healed Job. This is a twist you might not have expected. Job prayed for his friends who were in the wrong, and God brought healing to Job. It doesn't say Job prayed for Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and God forgave them. It says Job prayed for them, and God healed Job. Now think about this. To pray for a friend even after they've wounded you? Yeah, that's where healing takes place. 
God knew something that needed to happen. Even beyond the physical healing of Job, God knew there needed to be a healing of these four friends. And the way to heal the relationship of these four friends was the Lord had Job pray for them. Job, the one who was hurt. Job, the one who was wronged. Job, the one who was in sorrow and suffering and pain, prays for his friends because according to the Lord, that's where true healing is found. Watch this. Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. When did the the Lord restore his fortunes? When he prayed for his friends. Almost as if the restoration of Job's life and fortunes and good things was contingent on him praying for his friends. Why would God do that? Because relationship is of such a high value to the Lord. Rick, I've had some sorry comforters. I've had some miserable companions. Absolutely, but listen, it is in forgiving that we find healing. And it's in forgiving that Job finally gets healed himself. That the relationship of these four guys, as rough as it is through these 38 chapters, the relationship gets healed. Because that matters to our friend, our Lord Jesus. Job is being invited to repentance, to turn toward God. And the completion of the journey of repentance is always in forgiveness. Because Job becomes more like God, who he is turning toward as he forgives his friends. It's in forgiveness, gang, that we become friends like Jesus. Because that's what he has done. Zechariah 13.6 says, One will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus' response to the wounds from the nails and the piercing of his side. When people look at him, when we look at him in eternity, his response to where those wounds come from is, I got them in the house of my friends. That's the mark of friendship. What Jesus bore at Calvary. Our words that have wounded Him, our actions that have afflicted Him, our sin that has brought Him the greatest suffering, and yet He forgave. So Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Therefore He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. If you want to be a friend like Jesus, it starts by having a friend in Jesus and then praying for those who have wounded you like Jesus. Let's take communion together. Um, There is a moment in John 13 at the Last Supper. I'll just read this to you. Tom, you can go ahead and get the light if you'd like to. There's a moment when Judas is there across the table. Jesus seated with his friends. Remember, Jesus has said to them all, actually, he will say to them just after this, You're my friends. I mean, you're my friends. And they all know that. But the one man, Judas, who's sitting there. And we're told in John 13 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, testified, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He's in the house of his friends. 
one of you is going to betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of them he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was John. And so Simon Peter gestures to him and says, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus answered and said, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. This goes by so fast, you almost wonder, well then wasn't it obvious to all the apostles who the betrayer was? No. Because this happened in the context of the Passover. There is a point in the Passover meal where, if you, you, where you can dip a morsel to give to a friend. In the dipping of the morsel, you hand it to the person you love the most, to the person you care about the most. And in so doing, what you're saying is, you're my friend. When Jesus handed that to Judas, what the apostles may well have thought in that moment was not, he's the betrayer, as much as, wow, Jesus really loves Judas. Wow, he's the friend. He got the friendship morsel. Which is why they didn't understand that Judas was heading out to betray him in the first place. The point is this. Jesus, even in that moment, is reaching to Judas saying, Will you be my friend? Will you be my friend? We take a morsel and we take some juice. And when we take communion, would you listen as Jesus says to you, says to me, You're my friends if you do what I command you.